You are listening to National Security Law Today. Good afternoon. I'm Jamie Baker, and I'm the director of the Syracuse University Institute for Security Policy and Law. Our institute is part of the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs and the Law School, reflecting the fact that national security combines or should combine both law and policy. I'd like to start this afternoon's event by thanking ABA President uh, Reggie Turner for hosting the event. I'd also like to thank Bill Banks, Mary DeRosa, and Holly McMahon of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security for their help in putting on this event, and as always, for their work in supporting and defending the Constitution. Before we move forward with our program, however, uh, we all would like to take a moment to remember the victims of 9-11. As President Bush said at the time, every one of the innocents who died on September 11th was the most important person on earth to somebody. Every death extinguished a world. We would also like to remember and acknowledge all those who have made sacrifices and suffered loss on 9-11 and in the 20 years since 9-11. We remember these friends, fathers, mothers, children, spouses, and partners in our everyday efforts to make the world a better and safer place. I'm reminded here of a poem by Rupert Brooke. It is titled, The Dead. I would like to read it to you. These hearts were woven of human joys and cares, washed marvelously with sorrow, swift to mirth. The years had given them kindness. Dawn was theirs, and sunset, and the colors of the earth. These had seen movement and heard music, known slumber and waking, loved, gone proudly friended, felt the quick stir of wonder, sat alone, touched furs and flowers and cheeks. All this ended. There are waters blown by changing winds to laughter and lit by the rich skies all day. And after, frost, with a gesture, stays the waves that dance and wandering loneliness. He leaves a white, unbroken glory, a gathered radiance, a width, a shining peace under the night. Thank you. It is now my honor to introduce ABA President Reggie Turner before we turn to our main program. I have a rule with these introductions. Uh, if I tried to introduce Ambassador uh, Patterson, um, I would be here for the rest of the day and into the night. Um, and Michael Vickers would take the rest of the week as would Sahar. So I'm gonna do three things about each person I introduce today. Please know there's much more and you can find it on websites in everybody's favorite Wikipedia. Um, Reggie is a partner in the Detroit law firm of Clark Hill, where he pursues his lifelong passions of access to justice and diversity. He is described as a serial volunteer. As best I can tell, 
He has served as the president of every bar association in America. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not kidding. Uh, he has also served as a White House fellow and at the Department of Housing and Urban, De Urban Development. One thing I think of special note today is he, a he is a founding member, in other words, the founder of the Detroit Public Safety Foundation, which supports first responders, which supports first responders by providing supplies, technologies, technology programs and awards in the Detroit area. So uh, thank you, President Turner, for joining us. Uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, James. And thanks to all of you for being with us this afternoon. I want to welcome everyone to this program in honor of a pivotal date that forever changed our nation and the world 20 years ago. Thank you to the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security for organizing today's webinar. As one of the oldest standing committees that will celebrate its 60th anniversary next year, your message about the importance of the rule of law and preserving the freedoms of democracy and our national security is still as relevant as ever. Our moderator today is a former chair of the Standing Committee. Thank you also to the co-sponsors of this program, the ABA International Law Section and the ABA Section of Civil Rights and Social Justice. We're also fortunate to have as co-sponsors the Institute for Security, Policy and Law at Syracuse University, as well as the Journal of National Security, Law and Policy at the Georgetown Law Center. I appreciate all your work to uphold the rule of law. It's hard to believe that it has been 20 years since 9-11. Most of us will always remember where we were when we heard the devastating news. Lives, hearts, families, and our way of life were changed by that day. As mentioned, my father was, was a police chief, so I do empathize with the families of courageous first responders. I honor the countless victims and all of those who were impacted by the events. Over the last two decades, security protocols have changed in cities across the globe. In reflection, we can't help but ask ourselves what worked well and what didn't work. And perhaps one of the most important questions, what lessons have we learned to ensure the safety of our nation and its allies in the coming decades? Our exceptional panel collectively represents years of experience in the military, law enforcement, homeland security, intelligence, oversight, technology, civil liberties, and other arenas. They will lend their expertise and speak with us about these questions and to the lessons learned that will impact national security, law, and policy for, for decades to come. This program will undoubtedly be a great resource with invaluable information. We thank our panel for being here, and we thank all of you for joining us. Uh, thank you, President Turner, very much. Uh, we'll now proceed with the program. Um, at our institute, uh, we asked ourselves, how could we honor the memory of 9-11 and the victims of 9-11 and contribute in a positive manner to national security, global security, and the rule of law? We settled on a series of lessons learned essays that would not look backward to adjudicate the past, but forward to inform the future. 
These essays will soon be published online and in hard copy in the Journal of National Security Law and Policy. There are 21 essays. They are all written in plain language. They are clear, short, direct, and geared toward policy and legal implementation, hint, hint. And they represent a cross-section of practitioners and thought leaders from the counterterrorism, national security, and legal fields, including Governor Kane, Lee Hamilton, Corin Stone, Eric Olson, Ken Watkin, Joel Brenner, Mary McCord, and more. We are grateful to Bill Banks, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of National Security Law and Policy, and Todd Huntley for immediately joining this project and offering a platform to share these important essays. I'm especially thankful to Matt Cronish. Many of you will know Matt Cronish as the Associate General Counsel of the Department of Homeland Security for Intelligence, where he's been a plank owner, uh, which means he's been there since the beginning. He's spending this year as an IPA in our institute, and he is the one who made this project happen. He led it, he cajoled people into doing it, and as you can see, he was pretty good at it, given the quality of the folks who have joined this important volume. Matt has been at the intersection of law, security, and liberty uh, for all of his career. Um, and one of the things I like about working with him and have found to be the case on this volume is that he's a lifelong learner. To be successful in national security, you have to be a lifelong learner. Educators like to talk about that, national security people don't. But lifelong learning is essential, humility is essential if we're gonna get it right going forward. Well, as you can see, three of the people who decided uh, to join uh, this project are with us today. Uh, we thought they uh, had written particularly strong essays, everybody did, but these are essays that complement each other. Um, and I th we thought would offer the audience a quick and good look into uh, the work that we are presenting. Um, I will introduce each of them and then I will uh, do a round robin uh, question with them I will do a couple of questions uh, series, and then we will open the floor to questions from the audience. Um, I think I'm supposed to say there's some rules here about you can't do a chat bar thing, but um, you can send your question in. What you can't do is raise your hand. And if that's not correct, just play around with the tools and we'll get your questions and get them into play. Um, so uh, we're joined by Ambassador Ann Patterson. Remember, I'm three things for each person. Um, ambassador Patterson is a career ambassador, which of course is both a description and also the most senior rank you can hold as a career foreign service officer. She has served as ambassador or she served as ambassador to El Salvador, Colombia, Pakistan, and Egypt. She has also served as assistant secretary of state for Near East Asia and INL. Um, and as Deputy U.S. Permanent Representative to the U.N. and Acting Permanent Representative, among other positions uh, in her distinguished career. Um, when I was at the State Department, and I was a, uh, once I was a younger person, um, we always uh, knew that Ann Patterson had the reputation for being a nice person. And 
um, we would try and make our issue her issue because she was a nice person and she was a problem solver. That might explain to her why she kept on getting out of geography or out of function questions from us. Uh, but Ann Patterson is a great diplomat for that reason because she's actually diplomatic. Um, our next person, not in contrast, I might note, is <laughs> Undersecretary Mike Vickers. Um, as many of you will know, he was a uh, CIA operations officer for much of his career, but not all of his career. He was also in Army Special Forces, a non-commissioned officer as well as commissioned officer. And he's also held the positions of Assistant Secretary for Low Intensity uh, Conflict and Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence in both the George W. Bush administrations and Obama administrations. And I think as some of you will know, uh, he has extensive experience in the field as well as in headquarters. Uh, he was a paramilitary officer who played a central role uh, with the CIA uh, in responding to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Our uh, third uh, panelist is Sahar Aziz, a professor Aziz is at Rutgers Law School, where she is the founding director of the Center for Security, Race, and Rights, which describes well her interdisciplinary academic work and research. She is the author of over 30 articles, and I might note the book, The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom. She has also been a senior policy advisor for the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Homeland Security. I'd like to thank each of you very much for joining us today. And thank you as much for uh, writing those wonderful essays that you've included in the volume in which I commend to our audience. So here's our opening round of questions. I've, I've asked each person to respond to the following three questions and try and do so in five minutes. Um, Ambassador, uh, please describe where you were on 9-11, then describe the theme or principal lessons learned in your essay, if you would. And this is an optional added bonus. Um, if you might, could you select one sentence from your essay that captures its essence? And well, we'll do that with each person, thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jamie, and for that very kind introduction. And, and I'll start off by saying I was in Colombia, and I was just going down to the president's office because uh, Secretary Powell was coming the following day from Lima uh, when the first plane hit. And like everyone else, I thought it was an accident. And I went downtown, and we were beginning to talk when an assistant came in and said, that the second plane had hit, which we knew then was a very different story. So of course, Secretary Powell never came to Columbia and there was a focus on Latin America um, virtually disappeared for, for many years after that. Uh, but it was, a, of course, for everyone involved uh, and particularly those who lost lives, a very, very uh, heart-rending moment. So it, this has been a very useful exercise for me to see to look back and, and what I thought were the most important things we did learn and that we could fix going forward. That was really the most important thing to me. And, and the first thing that I, that I would say was hugely important 
is that we need people in the field with language skills and we need them there long enough to understand the environment. Uh, we spent two decades hunting terrorists very successfully. And I wanna emphasize this point. I think American leaders were very successful in preventing another attack on the US. And they were also successful in preventing attacks on our allies and narrowly avoiding additional attacks on the US. So the war on terror in some respects was a success, but it costs us because it distorted our actual knowledge of countries and people and languages. And now we have a big gap that's aggravated by risk aversion. And if you don't know what's going on in these countries, you're not in a position to influence them. So that's my first takeaway. The second was we needed to revamp our military assistance programs. This really came home to me in the Middle East where the fight against ISIS, the war in Yemen, made it clear that despite decades of military assistance, military sales, US training, most of these armies couldn't fight. Now, analysts are talking a lot about corruption, about ghost soldiers, about better civil military relations. But the first duty of any military is to defend its homeland. And we just saw a particularly dramatic case of these shortcomings in Afghanistan. My third issue is with the terrorism designations because I think these judgments about who is a terrorist are largely political. And I doubt they really protect us against terrorism, but they have become another regulation and rule-laden process in the US government that stifles resourcefulness and negotiation and good ideas. And then finally, I think we let our multilateral influence erode because we largely took it for granted. Uh, I think this was fairly dramatic in Afghanistan where we could have used a more robust international presence. And we saw a very dramatic example with our declining influence in the World Health Organization. I think there is a lot being done now to strengthen this, but I think it will take time. And I think the Chinese really have a game up on this. And looking ahead, I, I picked out a strange, what I thought might be considered a strange choice in the one sentence. And that was my virtual certainty that the lack of language qualified Americans overseas, not just state, USAID, CIS, uh, DOD, will make it more difficult for us to compete with Russia and China going forward. And China now has more diplomatic missions in the field than the US does. So I'll stop there, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador. Um, uh, Mike Vickers, please. Thank you, Jamie. Um, on 9-11, I was at a think tank in Washington, DC, just a few blocks from the White House. Uh, I was called to a TV as soon as the first plane hit the World uh, Trade Center tower, and then watched in horror as the second one hit and, and, and a plane struck the Pentagon and then um, the crash in uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, uh, before it could reach Washington, D.C. Um, it took me a week later to really um, join the fight ag against the perpetrators of 9-11 and the Pentagon and starting to design our campaign plans um, against Al-Qaeda and beginning in Afghanistan. Um, I'm really struck by something that occurred at CIA, as most of CIA evacuated, uh, the Counterterrorism Center continued on its, because CIA was potentially a target, 
um, the Counterterrorism Center stayed at work. And in fact, volunteers from across the CIA joined um, Counterterrorism Center to see how they could help. And uh, eventually, uh, in, in short order, a, uh, a sign was hung above the Counterterrorism Center uh, to remind those who work there that every day is September 12th, 2001. And that sign is still there today uh, at CIA. And that has animated the work of our counterterrorism professionals and special operators these past 20 years. I wrote about positive and negative lessons learned from counter from on a wide range of topics, from counterterrorism to great power competition. So it's it's hard to distill an overarching lesson, but I think two particularly stand out. In counterterrorism, it's the critical importance of denying any sanctuary to global jihadist groups um, that uh, wish to strike the United States and, and reorder the world. Uh, every time we have given these groups sanctuary in Afghanistan before 9-11, uh, uh, in the federally administered tribal areas of Pakistan between 2003 and 2008, uh, where we had, uh, we fortunately with good intelligence broke up a massive airliner plot, uh, transatlantic plot emanating out of Britain in 2006. Um, in Yemen um, for a while in 2011, uh, where we, uh, or 2008 to 2011, excuse me, where we had a near miss with an airliner that was almost blown up over Detroit. And then in Syria for a few years after I, the Islamic State took control. Uh, the threat to the American homeland went up. And so I hope that's a lesson that's uh, been taken to heart in the counterterrorism realm. In great power competition, the key lesson, I think, from our experience um, the past decade is the, is the need to strengthen deterrence. Deterrence in a lot of areas, particularly new areas of competition and conflict, has significantly weakened. And so we have a lot of cyber attacks. We have covert influence operations directed uh, to interfere in our elections, et cetera, and we haven't been able to deter these effectively. And it's something I think we need to uh, strengthen um, going forward. Selecting one essay, uh, one sentence from the essay was a challenging assignment given the range of, of things, but looking toward the future, the one I picked out was in my section on great power competition, and it reads, Perhaps the most important lesson of the past two decades is that national security begins at home. And the reason I say that is uh, uh, obviously our defenses uh, in aviation in particular, uh, but also in intelligence and law enforcement weren't strong enough before 9-11 and we rectified those. And that's part of the reason as my former colleague, Ambassador Patterson said, why we haven't had another attack uh, on the United States in addition to our offensive actions. But in my view, the central competition um, that we face going forward with China and Russia is economic and technological um, with China and an information influence largely on Russia's part through covert means with Russia um, that aims at undermining the will of the United States and its allies, particularly in Europe and thus the importance of really shoring up uh, our domestic base of national security and that of our allies while preserving all our freedoms. And I'll stop there. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mike. Um, Professor Sahar Aziz, you're up, thank you. Oh, you're on mute as well though. 
Thank you, Judge Baker. And I want to thank Matthew Cronish and Bill Banks and everyone at the ABA for uh, this timely panel and for including uh, me in this panel. It's quite an honor to be here. So my essay is called Reflections on Security, Race, and Rights uh, 20 Years After 9-11. And I should start by admitting my own positionality, uh, which is that I am one of the uh, five, three to six million Muslims in the United States who experienced the post 9-11 uh, era in a very different way than people who are not within that diverse identity group. And so one thing that Harold Coe said in a meeting when he was the legal advisor to the US State Department, which has stuck with me for a long time, and I don't think it's something he came up with, but it's something he said at an important meeting, which is where you stand on an issue depends on where you sit at the table. And that is very salient when you talk about national security and civil liberties and civil rights. And so my position at the table is someone who for the last 20 years in various capacities has been an activist, an advocate, a lawyer, now a law professor, uh, defending or working on the experiences of Muslims, Arabs, and South Asians in the United States. And so the three areas in which I focused on in my essay and essentially arguing that unfortunately and perhaps predictably the last 20 years, one of the consequences, which is no longer a secret, although for the first three or four years, it was very hard to get an audience about the factual reality that uh, Muslims and Arabs in the US were being collectively punished through national security practices and policies that were facially neutral, but uh, in the way that they were enforced, they were anything but racially or religiously neutral. And you know, we can have a debate as to whether or not the benefits and the costs uh, outweigh each other, but I can tell you from the perspective of those communities, the costs were quite high. And I think that the important thing for all of us to remember, and, and again, this is, this is nothing new, is if we, uh, decrease or erode our civil liberties for one group under the justification of uh, keeping our homeland safe, which in itself is a factual question, uh, it's just a matter of time before it affects all of us. And one could argue that perhaps the NSA mass surveillance program is, is one that affected quite a few Americans. But the three, the three practices that um, are highly problematic uh, from the perspective, again, of these communities are the FBI voluntary interviews of tens of thousands of uh, Muslim, primarily men, but also women, some women, uh, that continued to happen every time there was an international uh, terrorist attack or an international conflict, uh, whether it was war, whether it was um, something that could have been in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Yemen. And this was perceived as a fishing expedition and a form of harassment and intimidation by these communities because oftentimes the FBI voluntary interviews, which may be legal, right? So I, mean, I am talking policy here, not necessarily law. They created, um, they caused people to get fired. 
right? They caused their people to have neighbors who believed that they were terrorists because why else would the FBI come to your house and visit you? And oftentimes what we heard from many of the advocacy groups that were getting, taking, having intake from these communities is that the questions that they were being asked were very open-ended, uh, directly related to their religious practices, their political beliefs, their stands on uh, the US military occupation of Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. They were not, I'm not saying all of the interviews, but a significant number of them were not about, uh, were not specific enough to show there was a reasonable articulable suspicion for the FBI to at least ask for a voluntary interview. And then the other issue was that it was seen as a fishing expedition for informants. Right, is that the FBI clearly did not have enough information about these communities to be able to tell the difference between someone who was uh, either a dissident or someone who traveled home to visit a, a family member who was dying, who happened to be in a conflict zone or Somalia, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and someone who had illicit uh, intentions and, and plans. And to me, that is a competency issue. But of course, who's paying the price? Uh, the other two issues, which I won't go into detail, but I just want to list is the terrorist watch list, which you know, there's been plenty of media on that. But I can't count the number of times when we were when I was in the advocacy space, how inconvenient at best, if, if not completely um, burdensome at worst, of how these terrorist watch lists humiliated people because they were subject to secondary screening. Again, everybody seeing them in the airport, women required to take off their scarves in front of the public, which is against their religion. Uh, and then some people to the extreme where they were on no fly list. And the issue isn't just that, it, that we question whether they were accurate, but it was almost impossible to get your name off of the list. So it was just this continuous form of harassment and intimidation that frankly is something one is used to in authoritarian regimes in other countries in the Middle East and North Africa, not something that you would expect to happen in the United States. Um, and then finally, the public scrutiny and the government surveillance. Uh, the most uh, high profile was the NYPD surveillance, which I realize is a, a local police department, although we know with the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, the local police and the federal and the FBI worked closely uh, on, on many counterterrorism uh, efforts, as they should, but that's to say that uh, it's dubious if if the FBI didn't know anything or the claim that the FBI didn't know anything about the NYPD surveillance. And again, this was a mass surveillance program against Muslim students and, and businesses and uh, uh, mosques. So now people can say, well, these are all anomalies, they're mistakes, they're, you know, this isn't the way it's supposed to happen, but you're not talking about six months. You're not talking about a year or even two years. You're talking about more than a decade. And then you have Trump who pretty much explicitly states, yes, we do suspect Muslims. Yes, that is the government policy. Um, and, and the rhetoric of the Obama administration, which yes, he didn't use the war on terror for various political reasons, but the policies were the same. Um, and so the three insights, the takeaways are uh, self-explanatory, but really important to emphasize. The first is we need professionals, not ideologues and politicians in national security. It is a work that requires a high level, as, as, as Ambassador Patterson mentioned, of expertise. Not You need to be fluent in the languages right, of those cultures in which you are alleging there are terrorists uh, arising from those particular areas of the country, of the world. You need to understand the cultures and the diversity of cultures, whether it's a tribal society or whether it's a 
uh, agricultural society and all the different ethnic groups, because otherwise you make a lot of mistakes and the mistakes both have security implications, but they also have civil rights and civil liberties implications. And then finally, um, you know, diversity in, in the government in general, but particularly in national security, uh, is very important for obvious reasons. One, I think in national security is the perspectives and the experiences. And when I was a senior policy advisor for the Office for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at DHS, I had gone there with that intention. But I will tell you from my experience, it was quite a challenge to be heard and listened to because so many people that I worked with just had never experienced what these communities experienced. And to them, it just wasn't real. And Oftentimes, it was as if people of my identity group were just there in the room just so that a box could be checked, but it wasn't as if they actually wanted to listen to our different perspectives and that we needed a critical mass. So, so all that is to say that don't tokenize, right? Uh, when you're diversifying, diversify substantively. Uh, and with that, I will thank you very much. And I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you very much, Sahar. Um, okay, so uh, we're now going to do, uh, as we start getting a few Q&As in, uh, we're going to, I'm going to ask one or two questions, uh, one each to our panelists and then a round robin uh, question. Um, Ambassador Patterson, I'm going to start with you. Uh, and um, in your essay, which I might note you wrote before uh, the events of August in recent, uh, most recent events in Afghanistan, uh, as you noted, in your uh, first uh, discussion, um, your second lesson was that you learned that our military assistance programs have failed to improve capacity in critical countries. When they needed to engage in actual combat, many of them simply were not able to fight, despite decades of US training and hardware. Um, you call for an overhaul of the military assistance uh, programs. Um, what would that look like? Uh, what specifically would you do and who would be for it, who would be against it? And after you have a chance to respond, I know that Mike has had some experience in this area as well. And I would invite uh, Sahar to comment if she wishes, but it's a voluntary comment. So, so let, me, uh, let me say that the first thing we do, particularly we did during the, the last 20 years was we train up special units and our Special forces usually do this and they fight and they fight, they fight hard. Uh, and we saw that in both Afghanistan and Iraq, but, but none of, they can't succeed inside a politicized command structure. They can't deliver payroll or equipment or things like that. And then when we try to sometimes assist the larger military endeavors, I mean, we spend 740 something billion on you. We, we come literally in with the US manual for whatever we're trying to teach. And I, and I found a really good example of this. Uh, early on, we used to run around this 2005 and try and find Russian helicopters and Russian helicopter parts for Afghanistan because they could actually maintain these themselves. And at some point, we switched them to Black Hawk helicopters. And this really impressed me because I'd worked with this program a lot in Colombia. And even in Colombia, they were very hard to maintain in a country that's much more developed and more literate and mechanically inclined. Um, and then of course we had to get in contractor support to support the American helicopters. Um, and when the contractors left, the helicopters stopped flying. So we don't try and find solutions. 
that are appropriate to the environment. And then there is, of course, the our rich neighbors. We basically sell them what they want to buy because that's what corporations want to sell. Uh, even if they aren't suitable. I mean, Saudi pilots can fly a high performance jet, but they don't have the command and the control or the intelligence function to avoid dropping ordinance on Yemeni civilians. Um, and even when the American taxpayer is paying for it in places like Egypt, we tend to defer to local wishes. So, so don't get me wrong. I think American military relations with counterparts is hugely valuable. I would argue in Colombia it was very successful, but it desperately needs a redesign to be more effective. Um, thank you, Anne. Uh, Mike, do you want to add, comment, or pass? No, I, I, I agree. I think Anne really nailed it. And it, you know, it, our, our errors uh, vary depending on the state. So, for example, in, in building up the militaries of um, uh, allies in peacetime, we tend to defer to their wishes and not nearly, not necessarily provide them with the right equipment for the security challenges they face, but what they want and, and, and what's available to sell. And so then we're kind of surprised when they don't perform as well in war, but it's because we designed the wrong military. And we have, we have some of that problem ourselves, uh, you know, fighting the last war rather than the next one. Um, and then with, in other cases, it's, um, designing a military that's inappropriate for the political and security and cultural structures of the country. You know, so uh, in Afghanistan, we tried to build a, a central military. And as Ann said, you know, our spe uh, Afghan special operators fought very well, but you can't win a war with just special operators. Same was true in Iraq. The conventional forces did not do well. And, you know, part of that it was sectarian divisions. Part of that was corruption. Um, uh, part of that was over-dependence on U.S. support in terms of uh, uh, intelligence and air power and logistics, um, but we bear a significant responsibility for that. Colombia, as Ann said, is one of the cases where we, we mostly got it right, and I think one of the reasons is um, we didn't make them too dependent on us. We provided support, but, um, um, but less domineering support in, 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 the, in the cases where we had spectacular failures in uh, Iraq and uh, uh, Afghanistan. And then in Yemen, you know, we, we were simply outfoxed by uh, the, the, the former president who was thrown out of power but, um, by Arab Spring, but retained a lot of uh, political influence, and he essentially neutralized um, the armed forces so the, Houthi could, the Houthis could take over. Uh, thank you, Mike. Um... Uh, Sahar, uh, you're welcome to comment or pass. I'll pass on this one, thanks. Yeah. Um, okay, fair enough. I, 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 do, I wanted to um, ask one more question of Anne, uh, but this is really a question for all three of our participants, and it's inspired in part uh, by something Professor Aziz uh, said about um, one of uh, Harold Coe's favorite phrases about well, where you stand um, often determined, or where you sit often determines on where you stand. And um, the, the question to Anne is, we sometimes as Americans and as America perceive ourselves in a particular manner. And then we go overseas and we're surprised to learn that that's not the same manner in which we're perceived. 
Um, it seems to me that uh, you are particularly well situated with where you have served and how you have served uh, to perhaps give us some insights going forward as to how we might improve on that and how we are perceived overseas sometimes and how that disconnects from how we perceive ourselves. Well, it, I, again, I think it all comes back to local knowledge. If you have people in the embassies and, and in fairness in the private sector as well and in the military assistance uh, operation who've been there long enough and know people, they will know how we're perceived and they can adjust accordingly. And I don't mean ultimately we have to pursue our interests. It's not a popularity contest, obviously, to be, to be an American representative overseas. You have, to, um, you have to pursue America's interests, but you can certainly adjust your pitch and try and be more culturally sensitive and to get what you want if you're more familiar with the country. And, and these countries are very, very divergent. When I went to Pakistan, I was fortunate to have people that were very used to South Asia because it was really, really alien to me. So, so, so you need local knowledge, that's the answer. Uh, we do polling, you know, we're less popular in some countries than Osama bin Laden was. Mostly that's, that's pretty silly, uh, but, but what you need, you need, uh, you need people to know what they're doing. Uh, Sahar or Mike, any anything to add on that one? I'm happy to, to to weigh in a bit. So, my experience is having lived in the Middle East and spending a large portion of my time in Egypt, <laughs> and and working a lot on on the post Arab Spring uh, rule of law issues with local uh, human rights advocates, who unfortunately now many of them are in jail or under. Uh, house arrests or cannot leave the country, um, is that one, the people in the Middle East and North Africa, in my observation, is they are very astute at distinguishing between the people and the government. And they focus primarily on, or their critiques, and there are many critiques, focus on government policy and practice. Uh, because you'll see one person criticize uh, the U.S.'s interventions, military interventions in Middle East, in the region, and then watch American movies and, and consume American culture and, and praise it and want to visit, if not live in America. And they, they get um, access to perspectives and information that we don't get from the losers or the victims of our policies and practices. So, for example, when you talk about the Arab-Israeli conflict, the people in the region have listened and hear and know the perspectives and experiences of Palestinians, whereas we don't get those experiences, uh, those perspectives in American media. Similarly, the, their, what they hear about are their sources of information in Iran, in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in Syria. And therefore, they don't, uh, they're very critical of US policy and they find it to be very ineffective and they perceive American foreign policy as um, hawkishly self-interested to the extent that it's counterproductive, because I think it's no secret, there's, there's much public information out there that while the regimes may support the US, while they may be allies, the people, there's a large um, dissatisfaction with American policies, depending on which country uh, that you're in. And I think we need to ask ourselves in our foreign policy circles is, is that in our best interest to have the population 
be so distrustful of, of our government? And is that really, are our policies giving us the benefits that we think they are? And then finally, um, we have to be very careful about the sources of information we get from those countries, because within those countries, there is a, a divergence of opinions. And if you speak to the elites, they will say one thing. If you speak to people who are more or poor below the poverty line, they have a very different perspective. And then the middle class and, and also depending on their ethnic identity or their sectarian identity, you know, the Shia experience from the Sunni experience, the Kurdish experience in Iraq. And so and I, I'm sure Ambassador Patterson appreciates this more than all of us, but it's just worth noting that it's very important for our decision makers, you know, whether it's in the embassy or the State Department back in D.C. or, or or in DOD to not allow themselves to be captured by only one or two perspectives that are limited, right? And that then could, could produce bad analysis. And again, that just goes back to the point that we need very sophisticated, highly educated, uh, culturally conversant and, and linguistically fluent experts, especially in foreign policy, but all which overlaps with national security, so that they can see, they, they can not easily be fooled and that they're making sure that their information is comprehensive when they're trying to decide what really is in the best interest of, of the US. And I, I just want to end one thing. The Arab Spring to me was point number one of how the US really missed the mark. And I and that's that I think has a national security implication. So, uh, so Sahar and Ambassador uh, Ann uh, Patterson have both argued in their essays uh, strongly, directly, and I know uh, Mike is Mike Pickers would agree with this. I would agree with it, though we don't care what I think. Um, that cultural competence and language are so important. Uh, but we we've, we've heard this refrain before. We heard it. Uh, uh, after the uh, in Somalia, we've heard it in the context of Iran Contra. We we hear it, uh, we get it. We we often say that's a reform, uh, but here we are again saying we need more language training. We need more uh, longer uh, tours overseas. All the things we've always argued for. Um, starting with Mike, uh, and then uh, going around the table. Um, why is it so hard to implement this recommendation? Who's against it or why isn't it getting implemented? Well, to some extent, we've um, um, devalued expertise among our uh, national security professionals, military, diplomatic, intelligence, um, for diversity of experience. Um, not diversity in the sense that uh, Professor Aziz was talking about, but you know, to serve in a wide variety of places or to provide um, more of your um, employee base um, that same experience. So, you know, one of the criticisms of our performance in Vietnam, for example, was that we had very short tours. Commanders were there for six months to 12 months, and then they'd leave and be replaced by another. We did the same darn thing again in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and not surprisingly, some of our people who served the longest in the area uh, performed the best, but it didn't necessarily uh, change the institution's approach to that. But, um, um, you know, it's not hard to provide, um, it, you know, it's not a uh, an intellectual problem to train expert 
uh, in regions and languages and cultures. You just got to want to do it. And, you know, and we've done it at, at times in the past, but haven't stuck with it. Uh, Anne or uh, Sahar, um, do you, um, Anne, the prerogative and Sahar, the prerogative is yours since you've been arguing for this, but I just say, uh, do you have something to add to Mike's response? Um, not on the need for it, but how we get it done. So, so I think the, the main problem is that it's a lot easier to award contracts and buy stuff than it is to develop people. That requires a longer term horizon. And on language, I think we simply got arrogant and assumed that we could speak English anywhere we went and the world would have to adjust. Now, fortunately, there have been some good studies done about reforming the civilian workforce on this. And I think, I think Mike makes a valuable point about, about diversity of experience. And I think we're about ready to have this debate on China too. Are we gonna put people in Mandarin for 30 years? Are they gonna be China experts? Are we gonna have a diversity of experiences so people don't quote, get captured by clientitis? And, and I think we're gonna see that, uh, but we've got to develop, it's a long-term process. The last people to do this were, were with, any, with any luck, were uh, Secretary Powell and Rich Armitage. And then their reforms got totally blown away by Iraq and Afghanistan. I'll, I'll just add, I, it would, it would uh, behoove me not to say this as a, as a professor in higher education. I think that with all the money that's spent on national security and the contractors, there, it, there needs to be more money given to universities for language training and for uh, in-country right, learning uh, through various means. And that is really an investment in higher education so that you have qualified. And I realize this is for the civilian employees. And I understand that the, that the Department of Defense does have the Monterey Institute on Languages, which is known for being a very strong program, intensive program. We need more of that. Because what we're seeing, at least in the civilian world, is less and less funding for, for what I agree with you, Ambassador Patterson, human, you know, investing in humans takes time, but this should be a permanent process for different parts of the world. And so um, it is somewhat of a failure of our higher education system, but national security is a government, a state responsibility, and so state funds should be allocated there. Well, thank you. I'm, I just occurred to me uh, that um, Reggie Turner is on this call, the president of the ABA. And um, one of the problems in law schools is that the ABA will only give six credits uh, toward your law degree outside of the law school. So the ABA has insisted that you take another torts course or another three tax or contracts courses, not language. And language is a core competency uh, for law practice in a global world, just as it is a core competency for national security practice. So I hope that Reggie will uh, go back tonight and immediately change the ABA accreditation standards uh, to, <laughs> to allow uh, more language credit in law schools. I think that will be about as easy as changing the military assistance programs. Um, Okay, um, I, we, we're getting a lot of questions. I just want uh, our audience to know that um, to, uh, there are two si sifting mechanisms. Oh, wait, uh, Reggie, are you committing to do that? 
I just wanted to make it clear that I was not committing to do, to do that. <laughs> but, 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 uh, you heard the point, right? We, yes. uh, the, whatever the accrediting accrediting entity is uh, in whatever professional field, um, they they ought to stay up to speed on what is most relevant. Um, and in language, we are all arguing is a critical component of professional competency, not just in the national security field, but I think generally in the legal field. Um, but I will, I, I'm done putting you on the spot. I had fun doing it, uh, <laughs> but it's a serious point, I think. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so to our audience, I'm, I'm kind of sifting through questions. I'm avoiding questions about uh, looking backwards, about why this happened or that happened. Um, I'm gonna focus on looking forward questions. Um, one of the looking forward questions um, is, uh, and I know your essays were not about this, um, but in a rapid fire manner, which is to say limiting yourself to three to five sentences, what, how would you address or what would you do to change or perhaps keep current our uh, US immigration policies and practices uh, going forward? Have you can you derive any lessons from the past 20 years to apply to the next 20 years in the area of immigration? In other words, um, you you didn't write your essays about this. This is a uh, you know a pop up question, but it's a fair question, and you're welcome to comment. But I'd ask you to limit your responses uh, to three to five sentences so that we can get to as many questions as possible. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to start with two sentences or so. Um, so one, um, you know, as I said, I believe that our central competition with China is really an economic and technological one. Uh, uh, you know, it has a military dimension, but it's all ultimately about those aspects of state power and then the influence that it creates. Immigration plays a big role in whether the United States is going to prevail in that. If you look at the number of uh, first-generation immigrants who have uh, started successful companies in Silicon Valley, it's pretty staggering. The second part of it, I think, just equally important, is immigration reflects who America is. And if we're going to recapture that, um, you know, as Professor Aziz was talking about how the rest of the world looks at America, that's an important uh, component of it, I think. So it's a, it's a critical tool for um, just speaking from a national security perspective, as well as human rights and, and, and others. Yeah, I have a variant of that, uh, what, uh, what Professor Aziz said. Certainly in the early days, we were super strict on Muslim men, and these were Muslim men who were going to MIT and Caltech and were liable to stay here because Pakistan had very good secondary education. It got marginally better that we didn't put these, pull the really endanger their careers and endanger their scholarships, but it was still bad. There was a lot of prejudice in the whole visa process. You were never wrong when you said no to a Muslim man, and that needed to change. So I think the first thing we have to do, because we're talking about national security, is we need to both increase the cap for refugees and actually meet that cap. Many of these refugees are from conflict zones where we are directly engaged in military action. And as an American citizen, as a taxpayer, as a voter, 
I feel it is my moral obligation uh, to allow those refugees to have more of them and to do our job or, our, or to meet our obligation in the international community to welcome them and, and help them resettle here. The same thing would apply to asylum seekers. Now, asylum seekers have to find a way to get here first, which is, which is so you have a smaller number. And then the second thing is, and this goes to what Mr. Vickers said is, we have to go back to the roots of how we view immigrants, which uh, at least overall has been a welcoming place, notwithstanding how we may not treat them well once we're here with xenophobic issues, but, and my family is, is an example of it, and so are tens of millions of Americans who are immigrants. Immigrants provide, it's a brain gain and a labor gain. The people who come here and want to stay here, not in the refugee asylum context, but all the other more traditional immigrants are usually among the smartest and the most hardworking people, because that's what... People don't leave their country and their home and their family just for fun. That, that's not what, what humans desire. There's a lot of cost to that. And we need to be grateful that we can, as a nation, benefit from their hard work, whatever, whether it's in the lower income jobs or the higher income jobs, and from their, and, and from their high education. Um, now, that's not to say that I don't think we should also invest in other countries, and that's a different foreign policy issue. But... It is foolish, it is not in our national interest to be anti-immigrant. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, I have a round robin question, um, which is looking forward. I, I like how uh, you all use that to pivot uh, to looking forward. Um, what is something we got right after 9-11? that we should know we got right and double down on or triple down on as we move forward, uh, lest we do away with it. Uh, and so um, I'll take your responses uh, in any order you wish to blurt them out, or I will revert to the uh, Anne Mike Sahar order. But you're, go ahead, please, if you have a response. We did a good job on the intelligence side. And, the, and the, we had, a, in my view, as I said, perhaps an excessive focus on terrorism, but there was, there's just no question, and Mike outlined some of these, that there were a lot of these uh, potential terrorist attacks that were identified and, uh, and stopped uh, before, they, before they took place. And I guess the question now is what's gonna happen uh, if we're no longer present in Afghanistan? But, but it, was a, it was a major success and a rather unheralded success too, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that, that uh, you know, we made some big mistakes in, in counterterrorism strategy, uh, some excesses that uh, Professor Aziz has, has talked about a couple of those. But overall, I think we've got some very important components right. One, that it was fundamentally an intelligence war Two, that we couldn't win it without partners. The United States built a network of some hundred countries, I've called it the Global Counterterrorism Network, that as Ambassador Patterson said, disrupted a lot of plots and pre prevented them from ever getting past the planning stage. Um, and then we've used um, in areas where we weren't in armed hostilities outside of Iraq and Afghanistan, we've used precision force, um, uh, uh, so-called drone wars, um, 
in a in a fairly highly effective manner when we didn't have any other instrument. And so I think those are things that uh, we did reasonably well, and they contributed to preventing another attack. This is a hard question for me because I I am I have many 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 more criticisms, and I have tried to find a silver lining. Um, and most of the things we did right is not due to the U.S. government's actions. It is due to civil society and um, informed and engaged citizens. And so it's not so much that we did it right, but it's something that we're doing right as a country and that I hope we continue to value, which is a free and independent and robust civil society that can be the watchdog uh, on the national security apparatus, whether it's in the military, you know, DOD context, or whether it's in the civilian context, because that's where the excesses can be checked. I don't have as much faith as it being in, through the self-regulation process. And I suppose if I looked at something abroad, I will say that it was a success, but then it was reversed, unfortunately, which is when uh, Obama accepted the democratic elections in Egypt, for example. Um, and while I will go on the record and have gone on the record to say that I would not have voted for Morsi if I was an Egyptian citizen voter, but it was really important and it was a success that the US supported democracy regardless who won. Um, but unfortunately, I think we reversed that um, and we're back to uh, a situation where we're supporting people who are who are you know, ruling in an authoritarian way, and that's another ticking time bomb on, in the foreign policy area. Uh, and uh, do you wish to respond, given your role in knowledge of Egypt, or uh, move on? Your choice. No, I think that's right. I think it is, in some respects, a ticking time bomb. I mean, there was occasion to review the looming tower today, and the the um, the a lot of these extremist groups started in Egyptian jails years ago, and uh, the same cycle is repeating itself. So I think it's my own view is it's stable for the foreseeable future, but certainly not forever. Uh, thank you. Um, we <laughs> there are a lot of questions coming in, uh, and and. Um, what I'll say to the audience is we'll save the questions. No, I mean, we're going to try and get through some of them, but if we don't get to your questions, uh, we will save them and um, I will distribute them. And to the extent there are, our panelists wish to do so, we'll invite them to respond, but we will not insist that they do so uh, since they've been very generous with their time. Um, so a question for uh, Sahar. Um, from the uh, chat bar, uh, do you believe that the Muslim community in the United States has done enough to express their views on terrorism and condemn uh, extremist uh, activities? So th this is a, I will give you the factual response, but first I wanna preface it to, to establish that the Muslim communities have absolutely no obligation to condemn terrorism unless they, are part of it, and they're not. Uh, the 19 hijackers were foreign terrorists. Uh, I believe there was only one or two uh, that of the, at least the terrorist attacks we know or attempted plots we know that were foiled. 
that were actually people who were living in America their whole life. Most people were new immigrants or were trying to get here. So, and even if they were, these are individuals. So we have to hold people individually responsible and not expect uh, white evangelical Christians to apologize and condemn uh, white supremacist hate crimes simply because uh, there is a white male who engages in a hate crime against uh, black people in a church, right, in North Carolina. So having just said that is, and yet Muslim communities have actually condemned them mainly because they were desperate to try to prove their innocence uh, and to try to assure their neighbors and their coworkers and their friends that they had nothing to do with 9-11 or any of the, of the terrorist threats. And none of those condemnations were covered in the media. And there is actually a website, and, and I'm happy to provide it offline, that literally keeps track of all of the formal condemnations of terrorism by American Muslim groups and mosques and leaders. And it's more than a thousand over the last 20 years. It may even be in the couple thousand. And that, that uh, website was created because this question kept coming up. And so again, I don't think they should have to condemn it unless we expect every group to have to condemn a violent act when someone from their identity group commits a crime, because I think it's un-American to expect that. Uh, if we're going to accept that as the way we live in our society, well, then it so happens that, uh, yes, they have condemned it, but the media doesn't cover that because it's not, it doesn't sell uh, papers and it doesn't sell advertisements and it's not clickbait. Uh, Sahar, I, I'll, um, if you send uh, the link, uh, we will make sure it's distributed uh, to our audience. Um, Anne and Mike, uh, do you wish to comment uh, on this question and um, Sahar's response? Okay. Uh, oh, please. Oh, okay. Uh, so here's one, um, a bureaucratic one. Uh, one of the questions is, um, what would you change or what, what would you do differently in terms of the organizations uh, at state and DOD? Uh, as we look forward to the next 20 years. Um, we've all, our panelists have all uh, looked not just at terrorism, counterterrorism in the next 20 years, but also great power rivalry in China. So, um, Anne, uh, you're not only the Secretary of State now, but you're also the Congress and the president, congratulations. It's a new system of government. Um, and Mike, you were the SecDef and the Congress and the president, um, what is what are one or two things that you would do differently or change bureaucratically? Well, it's sort of a cliche to say that both state and USAID need more resources, but I but I think it's true. The disparities between DOD, what seven hundred billion, seven hundred forty billion, whatever the request was this year, and the sixty billion allocated to the State Department is pretty dramatic, uh, and and. It's you know dramatic difference in scale, so a few hundred million dollars would go a long way to to increasing the the capacity of the State Department and allowing some float. My colleague Ron Newman wrote an article this week that we've had a uh, hundred years of problems with the State Department being able to surge, 
so that would help. And, and I don't want to leave the development uh, uh, agencies out of this either. They, they also need more resources. I would argue they needed to be better targeted, but they, they are a critical element of, of uh, American foreign policy. Um, so I, I, I would agree with Anne on that point, just getting into State Department turf a little bit. If you look at USAID during the 1960s, uh, when I think it had like 17,000 employees to what it became after the Cold War down to a few thousand and largely administering contracts um, uh, to others, uh, it, it's a skeleton of its former self. And, you know, and I think that's hurt American uh, influence abroad. Um, I'm generally skeptical of organizational change. I think we do too much of it. Um, we just move wiring boxes around. And I think, you know, unless you can show that this is really going to enhance your capabilities, your ability to perform your core missions, uh, you know, whatever that is, uh, engaging in diplomacy or deterring or uh, conflict or, or defeating an adversary if you have to, or collecting intelligence or analyzing intelligence. It doesn't matter how you wire things. Um, you know, I think the jury's out on a lot of our 9-11 reforms. Uh, we expanded, we put more superstructure on the intelligence community. Consolidating the uh, Homeland Security, I think, was a good move, but it's still a work in progress. We created a redundant National Counterterrorism Center, largely. So uh, I think it's more about whole organizations build capabilities and back to what Ann um, said earlier about human capital. You know, you need the right equipment and you need the right humans and the organizational structure will usually follow from that. If you get those other two things wrong, no organizational structure is gonna make up for it. Uh, Sahar, do you uh, wish to comment? Okay. Uh, yeah, you want to avoid that one. That's... <laughs> hey, um, Jamie, if I could add one thing though too, that one of the puzzles right now is how can we, from a Department of Defense point of view, I mean, I'm a former operator, CIA and defense, but it's how we do well at the operational level and then lose at the strategic level. And, and I think one of the things that got washed out of a lot of the forces that got busier and busier after the Cold War is the time for education, the time to build strategists really atrophied. We got much better tactically. So some of our warfighters are better today than our Cold War counterparts, um, but we're not prevailing in a lot of these competitions or wars. And so you have to step back and ask yourself, why is that? Why are, why are we failing at the higher cognitive levels when we're very good at the more technical skill levels? So that's something I'd fix if I were SecDef or something similar. <laughs> Thank you for doing that, Mr. Secretary. Yeah, but I'm not going to be. So. <laughs> The, um, uh, one of the questions in the chat bar uh, was um, asking our panelists if uh, you could recommend uh, resources, either reading, book, whatever platforms, um, to further study and develop cultural awareness. Uh, and so I'll ask each of our panelists if there's one or two uh, references or um, methodologies that you'd point to if, if I'm uh, trying to become culturally uh, literate in a particular region and so on. I'll, I'll just start by uh, putting in a few plugs for the work that I do, which is intended for that 
very purpose. So first, I, I would welcome you looking at the resources page of the Center for Security, Race, and Rights. We have one for the academic, the policy, uh, multimedia. And we do that intentionally so that there is a place for people to go, uh, so it's curated. Uh, I also have created a bibliography with a librarian of every book that we can find since, I believe, 1970 that's been published about Muslims or Islam in the United States. So we limited it to the United States uh, within different disciplines. So that work has been done. And again, that's on the resource page or it's on my SSRN.com page. Uh, and then of course I have to put in a plug for my new book, The, Muslim, the Racial Muslim and Racism Quashes Religious Freedom, which attempts to provide a theoretical frame for at least the perspective of Muslim communities um, in the last 20 years. But what I will say is it is a lifetime job and the best way to do it, but I know it's not feasible, but I, I would recommend it for our children, especially those who are in high school or college, in-country experience. There's just nothing that can replace. I, I'm a member of the Egyptian American diaspora. And if I hadn't stayed significant times in Egypt, no matter how much I know about Egypt as a member of the diaspora, there's just so many things I just wouldn't understand unless I lived there. Um, and so I, this kind of goes back to the cultural training, but if you have the luxury of time um, and, and money, there's nothing that can replace that. Otherwise, I would just recommend that you're very uh, thoughtful and intentional about the author that writes the book, right? Like any good lawyer, find out what the, where they're coming from, where they sit at the table, and what their general ideological view is, and then obviously you juxtapose different sources together to make sure you don't get into a group think. Um, but ultimately it's, it's a lot of reading and the resources are definitely out there. You can email me offline at my Rutgers uh, email address. I'm happy to, to provide more resources. Uh, so, thank you. Ian. I agree entirely that in-country experience is, is invaluable. And, and some of us would say that the Peace Corps experience is invaluable because it puts people in in villages uh and and my husband was a peace corps volunteer in colombia and it was invaluable to have him <laughs> at my side when i was ambassador there but let me recommend a book carter malkazian's new book on afghanistan he spent a lot of time there it's a it's a long book but it's absolutely worth reading if you want to understand what's going on in afghanistan and and he seems to me I never served in Afghanistan to really know the country and to really understand uh, some of the cultural nuances there. Thank you, Mike. Uh, so I'll, add, I'll date myself, but uh, when I was a young CIA officer and I had my first experiences with Afghanistan, one of the first things I did was grab what was supposedly the best cultural book uh, on Afghanistan by a Princeton scholar named a, a Frenchman by birth named Louis Dupre, who specialized in Afghanistan all his life. And it really introduced me to tribal uh, customs and cultures, you know, because I, I had spent my career before that uh, on Soviet and East European matters and Latin American matters. I had three languages, Spanish, Czech, and Russian, and suddenly found myself in the Middle East and figured out I better learn something about it. But uh, I want to underscore the point about the, uh, the way the government really approaches this problem. 
For those who aren't going to be area specialists, we have very crash um, cultural awareness, and it and it's very useful. It makes our um, soldiers, uh, sailors, airmen, and Marines, you know, a little more culturally sensitive. But it's not something you'd recommend for real expertise. And then, you know, for our diplomats and intelligence officers we send around, we give them language training, they do a tour, they get something, they suffice. But the best experts I've really ever met were people that it was a major career, a part of their career, that they they had the language, they had multiple tours in the region, and they, they probably had some graduate or undergraduate education specializing in the area. But, you know, even two years of Arabic and a tour or two in the Arab world is not enough to make a real Arabist. You know, I my experience, CIA and elsewhere, is you need, um, you know, probably five tours or something before you really can claim some street expertise. Thank you, Mike. Um, and uh, could you repeat the name of the book you just recommended by uh, Carter Malkazian, I believe? Uh, and do so while unmuted. Carter Malkazian, uh, M-A-L-K-A-S-I-A-N. And I think it's just called The War in Afghanistan or something like that. But it's uh, But it literally came out about about three or four weeks ago. Oh, tremendous, tremendous. Thank you. Um, let the record reflect that I did not uh, ask uh, President Turner to allow law students to have a third year abroad uh, to extend their um, cultural inheritance. Um, I do want to make reference to one program that might be expanded, uh, but ought to be uh, more fully utilized. And, the intelligence community has something that has a very poor title of Intelligence Community Center of Academic Excellence. Um, but what it really is, is a grant uh, that is intended to help universities while partnering with underserved uh, communities, uh, educational communities, um, to increase diversity in the intelligence community workforce. And it, it throws a fair bit of money at it, but more importantly, it throws bureaucratic interest at the issue of increasing diversity in the workforce, including through cultural literacy, language literacy, and of course, all the traditional ways we define diversity in the United States. That's a program that ought to be uh, fully funded and expanded elsewhere. Um, and I would encourage folks who are in the audience to look for such programs. Um, there are other programs like that. That, that is a big dog program. Um, and it seems to be working. Uh, and, and so that, that, I just throw that out there. We're nearing the end of our time. I'm going to apologize to the many questions we've had that we did not get to. And I'm going to ask our panelists in, in sort of the concluding moment is, uh, um, to address something uh, that Mike uh, brought up in his um, in his essay, uh, he read uh, the sentence um, he noted, and it, by the way, it was the sentence I pulled out. If I was going to do a dramatic reading of one sentence from <laughs> from his essay, it was that homeland security starts at home, or national security starts at home. Um, the uh, 
But you also wrote in conjunction with that statement, Mike, you said perhaps the most important lesson of the past two decades is that national security begins at home. In doing so, you draw on your experience during the Cold War and you state that in a great power competition, here's the point, there is a need for broad bipartisan and popular support for our grand strategy. Um, those of us who are old enough to have lived through and participated in the Cold War, remember what it was like to have general agreement, except at the margins, on things like containment and uh, general perspectives about the USSR and, and, and things like that. Um, and, and we covet and long for, for that sort of unity, uh, or at least nonpartisan bipartisanship. So my, my closing question for each of you to comment on is um, how do we get ourselves back or forward to a moment in time when we can see more bipartisan and popular support for US foreign policy, national security, however you wish to define it as we go forward. And um, Mike, I'm gonna ask you to go first because in theory, you've had the most time to think that through since that's a key part of your essay. <laughs> yeah, so I think you're starting to see it emerge um, across some, you know, among national security elites, among some sectors of the economy with respect to China. And that's a change um, over the past 30 years, um, that there's more of a consensus that we're in a competition um, and that we need to leverage certain um, strengths. Uh, some of our previous strategies toward China have not worked, just, you know, despite our aspirations that they would. Um, but I don't think it's penetrated American society in the way that the early Cold War. And you know, the advantages that we had, uh, just practically speaking, in the early Cold War was we'd just come out of World War II, which is a great unifying event. And we had a clear and present danger with a Soviet army occupying half of Europe and the rest of it prostrate uh, and needing to be uh, vulnerable to communism and needing to be rebuilt. And we had nuclear, the advent of nuclear weapons. And so all that really concentrated the mind in a way that today's challenges as stark as they are, and they may be starker going forward, don't. And so it requires maybe even more political leadership of then than we had then. I, I was really struck looking at the early Cold War though, that you know how, despite an isolationist Republican Party, key Republicans back President Truman on things like the establishment of NATO and the Marshall Plan and, and others, it would almost seem unthinkable today, you know, to get that kind of thing done. And so, you know, there are many who believe that it will take a crisis or significant failures before we do get that consensus. I hope that's not the case. I hope our political leaders can rise to the occasion, but, uh, the jury in the past few years isn't very uh, uh, inspiring in that sense. So we'll just have to see. Uh, thank you, Mike. So um, we're down to our last four minutes. So uh, Sahar, I'm going to ask you to go first and then uh, Ann uh, Patterson will get the last word as, as they say. Uh, could you please respond to the question? Um, so at, at the risk of, um, you know, <laughs> getting on the territory of the political science grand strategist theoreticians, which I am not, uh, I will just give you kind of my perspective. So 
the first, I come with a lot of skepticism in, in terms of these grand strategy or these, whether it's a clash of civilizations, a cold war, you know, who, whatever is how it's going to be framed, this next international world conflict with what seems to be, you know, China or, or Asia, um, is I think we have to be first as citizens, very skeptical about the industrial complexes that arise. And there's been much written about the last 20 years and there are many entities that will perpetuate policies that are not necessarily in the best interest of the American people, but are quite lucrative and profitable for uh, these private sector uh, groups uh, that include people who work in the government and then there's that revolving door. So that information needs to be open and transparent. Uh, the second is, uh, we have to be very careful not to scapegoat the diasporas of whatever nation or nations this country decides wrongly or rightly to define as part of some grand strategy conflict. And so I'm very concerned about uh, the vilification and stigmatization of, of Asian, Chinese Americans and Far East Asians. Um, and then finally, we need more of... Um, a free marketplace of ideas by informed thought leaders when we talk about these grand strategy issues. Uh, if we really want popular support, uh, and we are not simply saying that, you know, as a, as a, as a, for public relations, we need the American people to know and understand the risks and the pros and the cons, and that needs to be through informed free marketplace of ideas, meaning not just certain elites have access to uh, the, the bully pulpit or the, or the media so that the American people can in fact decide for themselves whether they, they support um, the trillions of dollars that ultimately get spent in these international uh, conflicts. Thank you. Um, Anne? Over to you, please. So, so I think Mike's right. You do see a you do see an evolving consensus on China. I I hope it's going in the right way, and I hope it's about American renewal and not just um, not just criticizing the Chinese. It's not the fault of the Chinese that American children can't read. So we have to invest in that sort of thing too. Uh, but I've become skeptical uh, on this, and I I'm afraid I'm of the view that we're going to have to have. If COVID didn't do it, I'm afraid we're going to have to have some big national shock on the foreign policy side. I thought the Biden administration was on to something with prosperity for the middle class, but I fear it's all been blown away uh, by Afghanistan. So I'm, I'm fearful that we're going to have to have some major international shock to, uh, to uh, bring us together. And even then, I would be dubious. Uh that was not quite the optimistic note that I was hoping to end on, uh, but um, the, the optimis optimistic note, I might say, is uh, on this screen, in the form of our panelists, we see what a public servant in and out of government looks like who believes in the law, believes in national security, and believes in the sort of values that are embedded in our Constitution. Uh, we can do no better than try and emulate the careers in what you have done. And that gives me optimism if the students we are teaching um, and the people we are working with follow your examples, we will be in a better place 20 years from now. Um, 
And I thank our audience uh, for, you may not have noticed the small print when you signed up for this, but you have all agreed to read all the essays uh, in the next week um, and implement them in their entirety. So I will thank you in advance for that. And I will thank our panelists sincerely and wonderfully for, for everything you did for this panel and for your essays. Thank you very much. If we were in person, we would clap. Instead, we simply disappear. Uh, so thank you all very much. And thank you to our audience. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.